Wondering what's next in your business or personal life? Welcome to Success to Significance, Life After Breaking Through Glass Ceilings, a podcast dedicated to helping you with all of life's challenges, discoveries, and opportunities. Whether you're seeking a new career, retirement, or simply wanting to make an impact in your community or the world, join Jen Duplessis and her guests as they explore how to start, what to do when you're in the thick of a change or growth, and how to leave a mark in this world after breaking through your next achievement. You are moments away from the aha you've been seeking. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this episode. I am so delighted to have with me today, George Chanos, who served as Nevada's 31st Attorney General. And I will tell you a little bit more about him here shortly, but thank you so much for joining us, George. It's been a whirlwind of us trying to get together. But I'm glad it happened. Thank you, Jen. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. So let me tell you a little bit about him. I'm not going to read his whole bio. You can grab that in the show notes below and we'll go from there. But while serving as Nevada's attorney general, he successfully argued in a nine to zero case of Wharton versus Bach Ting, right? Bach Ting before the Supreme Court of the United States. Today. I think you're probably going to have to tell us what that case is, because those who are not attorneys don't know what that case is. Prior to serving as Nevada's attorney general, he had a distinguished legal career representing individual and corporate clients on all matters relating to the growth and management of their businesses. And it's what you're doing today as well is still helping people. He has served on numerous boards, both civic and corporate, and currently has been serving uh, for the last 10 years as the chairman of Capriati's Sandwich Shop, which I had never heard of until you were on our mastermind. So now I'm learning a little bit about that. And I'm sure our listeners want to hear about that too, about about a rapidly growing 100 plus unit ran by a unit business franchise ran by millennials, which happens to be something that you really are really interested in. And we want to talk about that at length today. So I just can't wait to get in because there's so many topics I want to talk to you about. Okay. So, so I want to start with you. How do you go from being an attorney you know, that is working on really in the corporate business kind of world. And to me, it's very confining because we all know when we think attorneys, it's, you know, square and it's in that square, but I don't see you that way at all, George. I see you as this person who's just so fluid. How did that happen? Where was this tipping point or this apex that you were like, I just can't be in the confines like this and I need more out of life? So that's, that's an interesting question. First of all, I've had three main guiding passions throughout my life. They've been art, politics, and business. So these are the three things that always seem to have drawn me um, closer to them. When I was very young, my interest in politics formed when I was six years old. I was uh, in the car with my mom. It came over the radio that JFK had been assassinated. Mm. My mom pulled the car to the side of the road and started crying That became a lifelong fascination with politics. Went back to our little apartment, watched the news. I saw this outpouring of international grief and and love and support for this fallen hero. And I was mesmerized. So I knew early on that I actually, you know, by the time I was 10, I knew that I wanted to be president. I was going to be president in the year 2000. I would be 42 years old. I would be one year younger than JFK. I mapped it all out by the time I was 12. And I began to follow that process. Wow. 
I had another epiphany moment when I went back to work in Washington, D.C. I was an intern for Senator Paul Laxalt. After uh, serving as student body president at the university, he invited me back. It was during Abscam. It was during the political corruption trials of the Abscam co-conspirators. And I was in the Russell Senate office building. Elevator mm-hmm. doors opened up. In walked the Abscam co-conspirators with their wives. I take one look at their faces and they are, you know, essentially death walking. And I knew that I did not want to be one of them. <laughs> right. so, that, uh, so that created another epiphany moment. So I thought, well, what do I need to do to do what it is that I'd like to do and avoid the pitfalls that these men fell into? Right. And I thought, I thought, well, I need to get into business. I need to make money. I need to be able to sit across the table from a billionaire or somebody who's trying to influence me. And I need to be able to say, I don't need your money. Mm-hmm. And if I can do that, that's the time for me to go into politics. So I went off to law school. I worked for uh, the San Diego office of one of the largest firms in the world. And I learned my trade and became proficient at what I was doing. The American lawyer referred to the associates at this firm as the Dobermans. So I was one of the Dobermans. Wow. Yeah. I learned to be, you know, a very uh, resourceful and effective lawyer. And then I saw that Vegas was growing by leaps and bounds. I had a history here. I had gone to college here. I worked for Senator Laxalt. And so I decided to come back to Vegas and open up my own shop. And I did that. I grew that and it was very successful. And I started doing some real estate deals. I made uh, quite a bit of money in, in, in real estate. And then uh, I got an, uh, essentially a knock at the door. I was at the Trinidad fight at the MGM and in walks the managing partner of the state's largest law firm. And he says, George, I've been thinking about you. And I said, really, Joe, what about? And he said, well, the attorney general uh, is, is resigning to become a federal judge and the governor has empowered me to find his replacement. And I think you'd be great. And it, it took me back to when I was six. And I thought this was, uh, this was destiny. This was my mm-hmm. destiny. And it took me back to when I was 20. And I thought, you know what? I finally have enough money to say yes. And so I said yes. And I shut down my law practice. I gave it to my associate. I you know, took a huge pay cut and I became Nevada's 31st attorney general. Yeah. And I loved the job. I loved the, the law and I loved making decisions and I loved the gravity of the position and arguing before the United States Supreme Court. I loved all of that but I hated politics. I found out that politics was not for me. I -hmm. found out that even though I had been a student of politics my whole life, and I knew that there was a level of dysfunction, I didn't understand the gravity of the dysfunction. And, And my ego made me think that I could make a difference. And the truth was that I would have been Don Quixote jousting at windmills. And I would have been swimming in a very toxic pool. Right. And I just didn't want my life to be that way. So it wasn't, you know, just a question of, you know, having the skill set to do it and having the money to do it. it was also a question of, you know, do I want to live this life? It was very polarizing. My views were not polarized views. I, I was not, you know, far right or far left. I was a centrist. I was a socially liberal Republican, right? Which is sort mm-hmm. of an oxymoron today, right? There's <laughs> yeah. not a lot of... Now, yeah. not a lot of Republicans that are pro-choice and, and believe in some gun, reasonable gun control and, you know, support the LB, LGBTQ movement and, you know, want to see criminal justice reform. So I have, you know, views that are 
that conservatives would consider liberal, but I have views that liberals would consider conservative. Right. 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 And so I, I just don't fit into a menu, you know, where, you know, the Republican Party can give me a menu and say, this is what you believe or the, or the Democrats can give me a menu and say, this is right. what you need to support. I'm just not that kind of guy. I choose my issues one by one and my candidates, you know, individual by individual. And I make informed decisions about how I think about issues. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I believe very strongly in the Second Amendment, but I also believe in in reasonable background checks. Right. Right. Um, Oh, I totally agree, too. I, I, I personally, you know, don't endorse the idea of military style assault weapons and high capacity magazines in the hands of civilians. Right. And I know the law better than most people know the law. And I know that under the Heller decision authored by Scalia, who's a very conservative, was a very conservative jurist, that our rights under the Second Amendment are not unlimited, that we do indeed have an individual right to bear arms, but it is not an unlimited right. You know, when you understand what the Constitution really says and what it really means and what its history really means, you don't fall into either camp that has these rigid belief systems like the Second Amendment is completely inviolate or or, you know, all guns are bad. You know, right. right. You you just you just don't. So do you consider um, yourself to be a constitutionalist? I am a constitutionalist. Yeah, that's that's what I mean, as you're explaining it, that's that's sort of where my husband and I fall now these days, you know, is we just want to protect the Constitution. (laughs) That's really what it's about for us. So do I. So do I. Absolutely. But, but part of that is understanding what the Constitution really says yeah. and what it really means, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, under the Constitution, the Supreme Court defines what these terms mean, right? right? right. So, you know, if the Heller decision authored by Scalia and, 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 you know, with concurring opinions from the other justices defines the scope of the Second Amendment, then that's the scope. It's not what you think it is or what I right. think it is or what somebody else thinks it is. That's not the Constitution. The Constitution is they tell us what it is. They interpret it. That's what it means. Yeah, I know. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing now is just, you know, that change going on. But it, you know, it gets me back. This gets I thank you for explaining that, because it does help me understand, you know, why your outlook on things is so broad. I mean, it's so broad. You know, the first time I met you, I was like, oh, I don't understand the, the tight. And, you know, we all do that. We stereotype people based on titles. Right. And, and I was going, the title isn't matching him. <laughs> it's not matching him. And I couldn't put. And when, of course, we talked about your artwork behind you and, and all the things that you, you know, absolutely love. So, you know, thanks for sharing that. And I, I think that, you know, has really brought you to where you are now. And this is something that now I imagine you're just eating up all the changes that are going on from a technology standpoint. Let's talk about that part. Well, before we do that, I want to talk about businesses because I know you're a business strategist. So what is it that you help businesses strategize in doing? I mean, there's growth. I get it. But I get the sense there's a little more to just growth in what you are consulting. Yeah. Think of Napoleon on the hill, right? And then he's got his generals down on the field, right? Napoleon on the hill has a helicopter perspective of the battle, right? So he sees the entire terrain, right? When I was 12 years old, I read a book called Ogilvy on Advertising by David Ogilvy, who was considered the father of advertising. David Ogilvy talked about this helicopter perspective, and this stuck with me. 
this, this idea of rising above, rising above and looking at the big picture, right? So for 30 years in advising clients, right, you'd come into me and you'd say, you know, George, I'm having this problem with my business, right? Mm-hmm. I have a partner that, you know, isn't carrying their weight, that is doing things that they shouldn't be doing. My industry is morphing and changing. My competitors are stealing my trade secrets, whatever it happened to be, right? Right. right. And I would have to rise above and say, and, and look at all the different angles, right? So I would try to understand your industry and understand your business, if you can believe it or not, better than you do, right? So I would do mm-hmm. research. I would do research and I would read and I would look at your industry and I would do everything I can to learn about your industry. And then I would learn about you. And then I would learn about the people that are opposite you that you're having a problem with, right? Right, right. And I would look at it from all perspectives. Now, when you're on the ground, when you're on the ground in the middle of the problem, in the heat of battle, you're not necessarily going to be the person that has the objectivity to do that, to rise above the fray. Mm-hmm. And to look at all of those different issues, right? You may think you're in a dispute with a partner. You may think that you're in the right and they're in the wrong. And that's, you know, you've arrived at that conclusion. You think you've thought it all out. You know, you're firmly entrenched in that position, right? Well, I would require that you, you know, switch positions and pretend you're the other person. And I'd ask you to tell me the story from their perspective, right? Mm-hmm. If you were mm-hmm. arguing their position, what would you be saying? And I try to get that information out of you because I need to see what the other side is, right? So as a strategist, I'm a problem solver, right? Essentially, that's what I've been, right? So mostly people have come to me with problems and I've found solutions to their problems, right? Now, it doesn't always have to be a problem. It could be you're coming to me and you're saying, I want to grow my business, right? I would look at more than just growing your business. I would look at the issue of where is your industry going? Where is your business going? The long haul. What happens when we do grow your business? Do you have the infrastructure to support that? Is (laughs) this really the direction that you want to be moving in? You know, you you have this plan of growing your business in, in this direction. Is that really the optimal direction? Is there another direction that you're not thinking about that might be more lucrative, that might be more sustainable, that might be more consistent with emerging trends in your industry? So if you come into me and say, I want to grow my business, I'm not just going to you know, right. develop a plan how you can manufacture more widgets or close more deals. I'm going to develop a, a comprehensive plan that really allows you to be successful, to be your best self and for your business to be its best self and for you to grow in a way that is sustainable, in a way that will stand the test of time, in a way that looks out over the horizon over the next five and 10 years and positions you for what's going to happen then, not just today. That's what I do. As an overall strategist, that's, I've been doing that for 30 years. And so when you do something for tens of thousands of hours, I don't care if it's golfing or playing tennis or singing or whatever it is, when you do something for tens of thousands of hours, and I've probably put in 50,000 billable hours, right? In yeah. Solving complex problems and developing strategies over the years. And when you do that, when you invest that much time, you develop a certain proficiency, right? Mm-hmm. 
And one of the other things that happens when you do this in all these different industries, right? When the problems are constantly changing day by day, industry by industry, individual by individual, you become what they call a polymath. You become someone who is a very broad learner, right? As opposed to a deep learner. So right. I'm not a deep learner. If you put me in a room with you know, Ray Kurzweil, who understands artificial intelligence way, way beyond what I understand about artificial intelligence, he would be the guy to talk to about artificial intelligence. I wouldn't, right? But I might know more than you do, or I might know more than the average person does, but right. I won't know more than a deep learner, right? Yeah, right. it reminds me of fiduciary, right? A fiduciary who is managing, you know, do, who doesn't know about brokerage firms, a broker or uh, stocks, for example, doesn't know about options trading, doesn't know about every mutual fund. But as a fiduciary provides that holistic outlook that says, you know, we might want to pull back in this area and move forward in that area. Go talk to the expert in that area. Yeah. 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 And I, I certainly understand that. I, you know, I love that you talked about emerging trends. By the way, I just want to say something too. You had said something on our mastermind is just stop limiting your business growth. That really hit home with me. And I wrote it down and I still have written down because it's a very simple phrase. Of course, I don't want to limit myself, but I think that we do tend to limit ourselves by saying, I just want to grow to here not that I want to grow vertically and horizontally, right, in a, in a complete spectrum. And, and for whatever reason, that hit me very well, because I do think that we think very linear when it comes to growth, right? right. So Instead of the Cap shotgun approach. Yeah. So, so you talked about Capriati. So you mentioned Capriati, yep. Yep. right? So I've been chairman of the board of the company for the last 12 years, and I have two young millennials that run the day-to-day -day operations, my partners could, you know, tell you the cost of pickles, right? And right. I, couldn't, I, I couldn't, right? I don't know anything about it, right? And what they do is they, they you know, I've provided mentorship and guidance to them over the years, um, but they run the business. I don't run the business. I don't have an office in the business, right? right. They come to me when they have problems um, that they need solved, right? And, or they're entering into big deals, big transactions that they need help in negotiating, right? So these are the ty types of ways that I add value. But let me tell you how, what, you know, Capriati's has done. So first of all, we're one of the fastest growing QSRs in the United States. We acquired Which the company. for? Uh, quick service restaurants. There we go. Thank you. So, so we acquired the company 12 years ago. We were about 40 stores. We have uh, 120 stores that are open and operating profitably today, but we also have about 150 and climbing stores in the pipeline, by the end of the year, we expect to have 400 in the pipeline. Okay, so 150 in the pipeline, mm -hmm. signed franchise agreements, paid non-refundable deposits, and that will be opening, right? We've moved our franchise inquiries from one a day to 10 a day. Wow. During the pandemic, when most restaurants were devastated, many sit-down restaurants closed, Right. Uh, they did. High-end yeah. high restaurants, something like 70 to 80 percent of the high-end restaurants closed and went out of business. The other sit-down restaurants were hit by as much as 40 or 50 percent losing money or closing. And the quick service restaurants lost sales of about 30 percent. Right. We had double digit revenue increases during 2020, during COVID, double digit revenue increases 
same store sales increased by double digits. We also acquired a new company called WingZone, which has 66 stores, which we acquired during the pandemic, right? Growth is good. Growth yeah, is, you, yeah. know, you, you want growth. But, what do you but, contribute? Yeah, I was going to say, what do you contribute that growth to? I mean, because I know you're going to talk about something called ghost restaurants, right? Ghost kitchens. Yeah. Ghost, ghost kitchens. kitchens. Yeah. So that's another area that we are pioneers in. So we were looking at ghost kitchens several years ago before, you know, most anybody was into the field. And ghost kitchens are essentially someone takes out a warehouse, they, they buy a warehouse or they lease a warehouse and they create kitchens, multiple kitchens, 50 kitchens, 100 kitchens in this warehouse, this large warehouse. And then they lease out those kitchens to restaurateurs, right? So today I have a footprint on my QSR, on my typical Capriati's of about 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. In a ghost kitchen, my footprint, footprint might be only 200 square feet, right? In a normal restaurant, I might have 15 employees on a rotation. In a ghost kitchen, I might have two or three employees, right? So the costs of operation are radically different. In the restaurant business, you have, you have your rent, you have your labor, and you have your food costs. These are your three primary costs. In a ghost kitchen, I reduce my rent and I reduce my labor. I reduce two of my three costs dramatically, right? So that makes me that much more profitable. Now today, most of our customers are ordering online. They're either ordering online through us or they're ordering through Uber Eats or Grubhub or DoorDash or Postmates or whatever their favorite app is. Yeah. They go on that app, they order, and then the driver comes and picks up the food and then delivers it to the consumer. It doesn't matter if the driver is driving up to a 2,000 square foot QSR restaurant or they're driving up to a 200 square foot kitchen inside of a, of a ghost kitchen industrial okay. building, right? Doesn't matter. The customer is getting the same product, right? So if I can decrease my costs then I can pass those savings on to the customer and the customer gets a better value proposition and they're getting the same product as long as they don't need to eat inside and sit down, then, you know, the ghost kitchen option is the better option. So we now offer franchises to people who want to open up a franchise. You can become a franchisee of Capriati's by either opening up a QSR 1,500 to 2,000 square foot inline retail shop, or you can open up a 200 square foot ghost kitchen for a fraction of the price, right? And we offer both models. Some people, you know, want one or the other, and some people do both. Yeah. I imagine they would want to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Just in yeah. that, you know, has come out it, sort of as a result of, of the pandemic, right? I, I know it was around for a while, but it was sort of coming up as a result of the pandemic. I remember you saying something about the fact that there in some of these ghost kitchens, there's not even a human being that there are robots that are now, you know, dunking chicken or whatever they're doing, yeah. you know, and preparing yeah. food, depending on the type of food that, that there is. Yeah. Yeah. So for wing zone, we've recently acquired this company called wing zone on the back end in the kitchen. We are in discussions with robotics companies mm -hmm. about the possibility of creating robots. They, they already exist 
but putting them in our shops so that the robot would essentially grab the frozen chicken wings. They would drop them in the deep fryer. They would pull them out and drop them on uh, on paper towels. (laughs) And then they would take them and put them in a, in a uh, a sauce bowl and they would mix them, mix them in the sauce. And then they would take them out of the sauce and put them in a box. And then they would close the box and put it on a conveyor belt. And it would go out to the front where it would be served to the customer. Or Uber Um, Eats would pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. This can all, this can all be automated today. Yeah. Um, Well, of course it can, because we know, you know, what robotics can do in making, you know, in in building cars and and things like that. I mean, anything, anything, if you ever watch how it's made, you know that the robotics can do so much. Yeah. The Tesla factory in Fremont, California, 160 robots, very little human involvement required. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So let's go back to the question. So what, what do you think, well, not think, but to what do you owe the fact that you have grown double when everyone else is shrinking? What about the, the emerging trends and, you know, new things that are coming along that you, you talk about, I won't, won't say the name yet, but the things that are coming along, what do you think it is that, that allowed for you all to grow so substantially during this time? The ability to pivot and adapt to changing circumstances more rapidly and efficiently than others. And so we saw the the minute we saw this coming, our entire corporate staff immediately went virtual. So we were all working in an office, over 100 people working in an office. We all went home. We all began working from home, right? We shifted our marketing Um, from marketing our existing retail locations to instead putting our advertising dollars online into marketing, online purchasing, and online ordering. So we increased the number of customers that were availing themselves. While everyone else was still setting it up or fighting the system. Yeah. 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 While everyone else was basically, you know, trying to lobby to open up their stores right? We went digital. Yeah. We went digital. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's so simple, but that's exactly what you talk about all the time, you know, is, is with the emerging trends and with the things that you talk about in your new book, yes. in your new book as well. So let's go ahead and segue over to the new book, which is the millennial samurai. It's interesting that you called it the millennial samurai, because I actually was saying it's I don't even know what else to call it, but it's so much more than millennial. It is you and I, you know, we're both baby boomers, you know, in this boomer era adapting to, and not just to millennials, we need to be adapting to Gen Z, right? Gen Z and now the alpha generation, right? Now we have alpha. It's not about millennials. The reason it's called millennial samurai is that this whole new foray of mine into writing and into speaking was inspired by my daughter, who is a millennial. millennial. I wanted to prepare her for the future, right? And my nephew, my oldest nephew, I have a number of nephews and nieces, but my oldest nephew is also a millennial. And so they were the original inspiration. And then the other thing is that it occurred to me that as, you know, whatever we think, millennials have been given a bad name, a bad rap, where essentially they've been characterized wrongly or rightly. They've been characterized as entitled and delusional 
and not embracing the baby boomer generation's values, I realized in looking at this problem that we're facing as as a global community of both a problem and an opportunity, looking at the change that's coming through technology, the the technological revolution, which I see as a tsunami of technological change, the millennial generation, regardless of what we think of them, they will be at the tip of the generational spear as humanity encounters this tsunami, right? Yeah. You and I will be older, right? Yeah. I'm 60. I don't, I don't know how old you are. I'm sure you're nowhere near what I am, but I'm 62 years old. I'm 62 years old. I'm going to be getting. I was older. born two days after Kennedy was shot because my mother was so distraught because she worked for the secretary of state under Kennedy. Okay. So wow. that's when I was born two days after he was shot. Yeah. Wow. Regardless of what, you know, we all think of millennials, they are at an age where as humanity encounters this tide of change, mm-hmm. they will be the first major generation at the tip of the spear yeah. to essentially tackle these problems, right? I will be older and I will be more of a liability than an asset, right? I'll be a drain on the system as I get older, right? And I'm not going to solve the world's problems. The people that are going to have to solve the world's problems are going to be first the millennial generation, the 85 million of them, then the Gen Zs along with them, then the alphas, right? This is the, the tidal waves going to hit them and they're going to have to deal with it, right? So that's why it's millennial samurai. And I feel that my role, our role, the the baby boomer generation, is to do everything that we can to empower this generation, right? To enable them to pass down as a legacy what it is that we have learned, right? What is it that we know that they don't yet know that we can share with them so that they become more formidable and more resilient and more adaptive and better at dealing with these problems because the and way quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quickly. Because quickly. the way in which they handle these issues yeah. is going to affect you and me, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to hope and 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 try to encourage them to handle them effectively and appropriately, right? And not just the way we see it, but the way they see it, because they're going to inherit that world and they're going to live in that world and All these subsequent generations are going to inherit and live in that world. So how they see the world and how they want the world is very important. It's important for all of us that they make good decisions, right? So how can we empower them and educate them to make good decisions, right? As as we see it, you know, give them whatever information we have. Yeah. And I mean, right now we have five generations in the workforce at the same time. And no time in history have we ever had five generations at one time. And it's imperative that we all understand each other. Not that, you know, and I love that you're saying, you know, that as baby boomers, we need to help them. And I I do agree with that. But I also think as millennials, they need to help us. They need to help us for those you know, and I, I consider myself to be very techie. I mean, heck, I've been doing a, a podcast. I'm one of the veterans in podcasting, right? Over six and a half years, I've been doing this. 
So I consider myself to be very techie, but I think that there's many of baby boomers and many Gen Xers that are not techie at all. And the millennials need to look in the rearview mirror and bring us along just as much as we need to push them forward. Right. Because I know this was the push generation, too, that that Gen Xers were pushing their kids out. They were pushing them constantly, you know, but I do agree with you. My, both of my kids are millennials. Both are very, very successful. My son is an Inc 500 business owner. He owns a business that debuted at 234 and Inc 500, you know, these guys. And and so I don't look at millennials as bad because my kids are great. (laughs) They're great. Sounds like every generation has them. Every generation has them. It sounds like you've got some millennial samurais. Yes. Oh, I totally do. Yeah, I absolutely do. And and we're, you know, we're creating that that arrow right now for my daughter. You know, she's already got it, um, but she's making a shift in what she's doing for a living. Very similar to what she's doing now, but it's enough of a shift that we're starting to help her build and make that sword, you know, so she can be the spear of it so that we can take a step back in one of our businesses. Right. I think it's great what's going on because this is. And we, I think it started last year. It's funny how the 21st century came along and we're 20 years into the 20, 21st century. And we're just now realizing that there's this thing called leadership and what it looks like, what it really looks like. It's, um, it's collaborative, it's team oriented, it's community oriented. It is a new way of working where we have freedoms that we didn't have before, but yet having more productivity and more efficiency as a result of it. And I know that that's, you know, as as I was browsing through the, the digital version, I can't wait to get the real version so I can really dig in. The digital version of your book, you know, is, is that these opportunities are now ahead of us and we need to take advantage of them as quickly as we possibly can. So, that's why you want to get it in the hands of how many people? I'd like to. Well, I, I'm giving away the digital version for free. Yeah. And I'd like to get a million people to yeah. download the free digital version. That's my goal. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, to learn about it. And I know that I, you know, the minute you gave me what, what that was, and we'll make sure the link is here in the show notes, but to do it, that I, sh- I sent it off to my kids to read as well, because I wanted them to read it. I have to read to my husband. <laughs> He can read. He just is not a reader. Does that make sense? He likes reading his car magazines. That's what he likes reading. (laughs) You know, and so I've been kind of debriefing him on everything that I've been reading in it. And, you know, it's just an exciting, exciting time. So if someone, you know, if if someone who's listening to this podcast is a millennial, what are are you telling them versus, and I'm going to go the extreme and say the baby boomer, rather than the silent generation of the builders, just to go to those two extremes, because I think that's where the biggest spread is. The message isn't really different. As you pointed out earlier, the book is not simply for millennials. It's titled Millennial Samurai because they will be at the tip of the generational spear. But it's, it, it has uh, equal application to baby boomers. And it's, it's essentially, it's a, think of it like this. If I were to drop you off in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and I were going to give you a duffel bag, we can think of certain things that we would both want in that duffel bag, right? You might want water. You might want a compass. You might want an instrument that allows you to light fire. You might want something to cut with, right? So there are some certain things that you would put in that duffel bag, right? What I've done is I've tried to think of all the things that a human being needs to know 
and I haven't covered everything, right? I've only covered 182 chapters, right? They're one to three pages each. They're very easy to read. They're very quick for the short attention span reader, right? Even people- Yeah, well, millennials or people that, you know, don't like yeah, to read. True. They don't read. Yeah, only 3% yeah, do, right? Yeah, your husband might love this book because he can read one or two or three pages like a magazine. I, I personally prefer reading magazines as well, right? So, or articles, right? I, I enjoy reading articles yeah, he or, does or, or papers that people have written to, you know, do a lot of my research as opposed to a book because often a book is repetitive, right? A book on positive thinking, for example, might take 200 pages to tell you what they could have told you in two pages, right? So what Millennial Samurai is doing is is I've taken each of these subjects, character, courage, commitment, compassion, and issues that are facing us today, global warming, racism, incarceration, criminal justice reform, all of these issues, issues that will face us in the future, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, 3D printing, the internet of things, cloud computing, longevity escape velocity, asteroid mining. I've taken all of these topics and I've done the research so that you don't have to. I've done the exhaustive reading so that you don't have to. And I've condensed the, what I've learned into short bite-sized chapters that you can easily digest that will not take up much of your time and that you will learn a tremendous amount of new information that's extremely relevant to the next 30 years that you're going to live in or that your children are going to live in, right? So now you're going to, you're going to get what I have, which is a broad base of knowledge, a broad familiarity with all of these different issues, right? And the way that that can empower you, there are so many ways that that can empower you that it's incredible. I mean, first of all, as you're trying to solve a problem, you can draw from all these different disciplines and all these different things that you've learned, and you can apply them to any given problem in many cases. You're also going to be aware of all of these changes that are going to occur and how those changes are likely to affect your industry or your life, right? Or your relationships or your religion or your community, right? So we are living, what's important for people to know is that we are living in the most extraordinary period in human history. And let me tell you why I say that, okay? Stephen Hawking, before he died in 2014, told us that the singularity, the moment in time when machine intelligence eclipses human intelligence will be the greatest event in human history. Greater than fire, greater than the wheel, greater than space travel, the internet, anything that we have ever conceived or are even capable of conceiving with our limited intellectual capacity. Okay. So this is coming right now. Ray Kurzweil, who is the head of artificial intelligence for Google, who Bill Gates says knows more about artificial intelligence than anyone he knows, right? Ray Kurzweil tells us that this singularity could happen as early as 2029. Mm -hmm. That's what, nine years away? Right around the corner. Right, right around the corner, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, so the greatest event in human history happening in less than a decade, okay? So first of all, that's pretty powerful stuff 
in and of itself, right? right? Yeah. But then Kurzweil goes on. I mean, we've never had an occurrence like that. That's like a meteor hitting, okay? Then we've got Kurzweil saying that that's not the end of it, that by the 2040s, which is 20 to 30 years away, artificial intelligence will not be our equal. It will be a billion with a B, a billion times more capable than human intelligence. Now, we lack the intellectual capacity to even imagine what an intelligence that is a billion times our own even means, right? right. But, uh, absolutely. But, okay, but this is all coming in our lifetime and, and definitely in your children's lifetime, right? So, so, you know, when you have a tsunami, you look around today and you see a lot of change, a lot of rapid and radical change that's occurring based on our lives based on the last 50, 60 years, you know, that I've been around, I have not seen this kind of level of change that has been occurring over the last several years, okay? Mm -hmm. Political change in, uh, in particular, social change, right? Now, when a tsunami comes, the first thing that happens is you see the water level rise on the beach, right? So you start to see water on the floor, right? right? You don't see the big wave, not you don't yet. See tsunami. You just see water on the floor, right? What we're seeing today, in my view, is the water on the floor. Okay. And it's being brought about by the first wave of the technological tsunami, mm -hmm. which is our cell phone and social mm -hmm. media, right? This cell phone has a hundred thousand times the computing power that NASA had. 50 years ago, 50 years ago in 1969, when they put a man on the moon, they needed a room full of computers. Now, if I went back in, in the past and traveled back 50 years and I walked into that room of scientists with this phone and I said, hey, guys, you know, in 50 years, everyone is going to have one of these and it's going to have 100,000 times the computing power that you have in this room and every individual will have one in their back pocket or their purse, they would think I had lost my mind, right? Yeah. Stuart Brand, futurist Stuart Brand says, if someone is talking about the future and it doesn't sound like science fiction, they don't know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. right? The future is science fiction, right? It is very much going to be like science fiction. So, so you, you can see that just by looking at what would have happened if I went back with the phone 50 years ago? They would have thought right. I was crazy, right? So when I'm telling you that artificial intelligence will be a billion times or when Ray Kurzweil is telling you that, and it doesn't matter if it's a billion times, it could be a thousand times. It could be a million times. It could be double what human intelligence is. Even double would be a huge, huge, massive development, right? So we know that there are going to be these massive changes, right? So what do we need to know to be able to take advantage of these opportunities, not run from them, not be afraid of them, not be frightened by the change, but embrace the change, run towards the change, and take advantage of the change to live an extraordinary life? What do we need to know to do that? That's what I've tried to put in this book. In the book. Okay? Yeah. 
That's why it's your duffel bag. Right. Now I feel, and I hear what you're saying about, you know, the first wave coming through and it's coming on the shore and everything, because we also know that everything gets sucked out before the tsunami comes, right? You know, there's some, there, voice technology is something that I'm hearing a lot about. I just interviewed someone on my podcast a couple of weeks ago about voice technology and how powerful this is becoming, you know, that we can talk to Miss Siri. <laughs> you have to say that when you're in a room with these things nowadays, because they'll respond to you, right? Miss Alexa. And when you're talking to them, that now doctors are going to be able to tell the artificial intelligence is going to be able to tell that when you say the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs, they're going to be able to tell you where you're ailing, that you have a heart condition, that you have a liver condition. And all this, this technology is already here. It's here. It's, it's being tested. So I know that that that's actually happening and creating this big pool that's happening on the shoreline. What is the, the suck out? What does that look like? Because there is that that happens and then the wave comes in. So what do you see as being that? Is it our lack as of adaptability? What do I see as the negative or what do I yes. see as the disruption? Yes, yeah, it's the part that, that pulls back right before the tsunami yeah. comes. Okay, so, so first of all, there's going to be a lot of economic disruption right? In employment in particular, which is why people like Andrew Yang talk about a universal basic income, right? Because there are going to be millions of people who are unemployed, right? So think about it. First of all, McKinsey Consulting tells you that 47% of the global employment of the jobs that currently exist are susceptible to automation based on existing technology. Just right. based on existing what technology. we already have. So is it what is um, yeah they're that firm up in New York, right? Because I know I've seen the guy talk several times, and it's almost scary. It is. It's scary. I'm not going to yeah. say it's almost. It's scary. Yeah. So so the number one job for an American male is truck driver today. Those jobs are gone. There are three million truck drivers. Chrysler Dahmer was doing cross country trips in driverless semis with just a passenger sitting in the car in the cab. They've been doing that for several years. So those jobs eventually are going to uh, disappear. Uber drivers. Right now, today, there are 3.9 million of them. Next year, there may be you know, 5 million of them. Those jobs, once they have driverless vehicles that are truly driverless, those jobs are gone. Clerical worker, the number one job for an American woman is clerical worker. Those jobs will be gone. The uh, franchise food worker, 8 million of them. Uh, eventually, uh, most of those jobs will be automated. Anything, the, the, I guess, business economic imperative is that you want to reduce costs and increase profitability. And so anything that can be automated eventually will be automated. Now, what some people don't realize is that this goes much deeper than drivers, right? Real estate agents, title companies. These jobs can be automated. Right. Mortgage. Lawyers can be on. Yeah. Journalists. uh, um, The uh, Amazon owns the Washington Post and the Washington Post has an algorithm. In 2016, during the 2016 election, they used that algorithm to author 500 articles. All the editor had to do is type in a one sentence instruction. Give me a 750 word article that says you know, Donald Trump is 
you know, uh, a horrible person, right? Or Hillary Clinton is a horrible person, right? Mm -hmm. And the computer would generate a, you know, uh, brilliantly written, exactly 750 words. Grammar, correct, right. Everything perfect, right? Yeah, pulling from news feeds. Yeah. yeah, so they ran 500 of these articles during the 2016 election, mm-hmm. written by a computer. They received 500,000 likes. No one knew that they were written by a computer. God knows how many they've written since 2016. Oh, that no written by a computer, right? And they are licensing that technology to other newspapers around the country. Mm-hmm. So... You know, journalists' jobs are threatened. Lawyers' jobs are threatened. All these different professions, right, are threatened. And so we're either going to experience massive economic disruption and unemployment, for which we're going to have to adapt, pivot and adapt in some way, right? And some people argue that, you know, but this new technology will also create millions of new jobs. And it will. It will. The question is, how will we train people for these new jobs that will be created, right? Because at the, the turn of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, hundreds, we created the public education system for the industrial revolution. We were moving from an agrarian society to an industrial society. Right. So we created the public education system to teach people to get off the farm and to learn how to operate a machine, right? Well, today... We are moving from the industrial revolution to the technological revolution, and the technological revolution will dwarf the industrial revolution. But I don't see a new educational system for the technological revolution. I see us continuing to try to use the old public education system that was created for the industrial revolution, and that won't work. Right. 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 And that's why you're seeing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with universities. Yeah. You know, yes. in, in the form that they are now, you know, in the experience. I don't, I don't think they should exist in the form that they are now. Yeah, I don't think they will. I, I think the biggest concern, however, is the, the loneliness and the emotional because we have more lonely, you know, in the, the Gen Z and the and the alphas will, will be the loneliest because they just don't have that camaraderie in that, you know, yes. and that's I think what I'm most concerned about is. Yeah. It's you know, an issue. It's it's a big issue. Well, because- and you even look at even just look at the physique of younger generations over our generation and older. The physique has changed. You know, I've yeah. noticed that my grandkids are are not like my kids were at all. Yeah. They're they're like these little avatars walking around. It's just <laughs> it's just yeah. amazing. You know what is happening. Well, and I think that's important to recognize is that that suck out is going to be all the loss. And so preparing for that as an individual, preparing for that. I know that, you know, there's been some new changes with Mac and Microsoft Outlook and the look that just came out recently, you know, of how it looks over the last, you know, month. And we're moving more towards lack of typing. It's funny you say that because, you know, I have this. This is my keyboard. It's right. not attached. It's not right in front of me all the time. I move it around because I find that I don't have the need for it as much as I used to. Yeah. And I've really experienced that in the last six months or so that, that I can just do a lot of more voice technology for almost anything I want to do. And that's coming as well. And so we won't be learning how to type like we used to because we won't need to. I worry that we won't be remembering how to talk. 
I'm worried. Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. we talk in acronyms, right? Are we talking in? Well, uh, I mean, I uh, my my daughter has has a house. She has her own house, and she's got housemates, right? Okay. And some of those housemates stay in their rooms, and mm-hmm. they're on their computer all day, and they're texting. They're not talking. They're not using their phones to speak. They're texting, and then when they do come out of the room, they don't have eye contact. Their ability to converse is beginning to atrophy. Right. And there's this transition that that is occurring between the real world that you and I grew up in and played in and did sports in and learned in. Right. To the digital world. Right. A digital environment. And if you think about it, you know, as human beings, we all have brains and we all have an emotional system. Right. And so our emotional system can be triggered, our dopamine releases, right? Slot machines in Las Vegas triggered dopamine releases, right? Video games triggered dopamine releases, right? Participating in digital worlds and digital fantasies may make you feel good, right? And so if you have a life in the real world that doesn't make you feel good, and then you go to the digital world and that life gives you the emotional sustenance that you need, right? right? Stay where, there. where are you going to spend your time? Yeah. You're going well, it's to spend, completely avatar, right? I mean, think about it. If you think about the become, movie. Today, you have a choice. Yeah. You have a choice to live in the real world and you have a choice to live in the digital world. And mm-hmm. some people are finding the digital world to be more attractive and yeah. especially young people because their real world experience has become so unattractive, right? 50% of them graduate from college and can't find a job that requires a college degree. Many of them are facing hopelessness and despair because they live in communities where they don't feel there's a way out. Right. And they don't have hopefulness and, and, and and so suicide rates are up emotional. Exactly. So, so this shows, this shows a movement. This shows a movement towards a digital kind of uh, experience. And, you know, also, you know, people like you look at the, the NFT space, which I'm recently getting into because I'm an artist yeah. and, I, and yeah. I love to create. Mm-hmm. And so this is, and this is a very interesting space for me, right, uh, to create these NFTs. When you look at that space, there are people like Medicoven, right, who bought the Beeple at Christie's for $69 million, a digital work of art that he paid $69 million for. He's creating a metaverse. He's creating a world in the digital environment that you can go into. And it will have these museums Mm -hmm. that will feature this digital art, right? And it will have other things. It will have raves where your avatar can dance with other avatars or, you know, God knows what it will eventually have, right? But it will create a digital experience. And, and if people are spending eight hours on their phone or their laptop today, right, they may Imagine. be spending more time yeah. when you have these, these virtual experiences, right? So then you've got augmented reality. You've got virtual reality, You've got uh, experiential reality and, and all of these things. Millennials prize experience 
over everything else. Everything else, right. And education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Experience yeah. And, and having the education to know, be in the know. Yeah. Be in the and, know and, for it. And, yeah, and you, you know, I mean, even our coins, right? We look at our, all of the coins and, you know, I was telling you about my son. He's actually creating his own crypto in, yeah. inside of his company. He's creating yeah. his own crypto that people will trade within his, you know, within his company. And, you know, it just because coin, you know, uh, not Coinbase, but Bitcoin is there and a few others doesn't mean more aren't going to be coming in. And so we're going to have this this uh, different type of money. And look what happened to our actual coins. Right. There's coin shortage everywhere yeah. because of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's five thousand five thousand ICOs, initial coin offerings. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just Bitcoin. There no, are, it's there not. Thousands, There's tons there of, thousands of these. Yeah, thousands of them out there. And he has his own coming out too. And be called, yeah. I think it's going to be called, well, his company is Option Alpha, but it's like, a, I think he's calling it Option Coins or something. Option. option. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, but he's doing How the same. How old is he? I'm sorry? How old is your son? 34. 34. Yep. Um, he has a multi, multi-million dollar company. Yep. Being wow. looked at to be sold. He's trying to position it for sale soon of around 250 million. He has one letter of intent that came and he passed up on it because he wasn't quite ready to sell because he knew he could triple it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so him. we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Good I know. I, I, yeah. I'd actually love to talk to him, learn more about what he's doing. Oh yeah. I, mean, I, we will, we'll connect you. We'll, we will definitely connect you because he's having such a great, you know, great time putting this together and, you know, it's, it's, it's tremendous. And I, I mean, I just, the thing I would imagine he's probably doing something with NFTs too. I think he's starting with that. I know I was talking to him about that this weekend and I think he's starting to, th- to look in that direction if he's not already done it. I know he's got a couple million in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So he was in on it early. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. He was in yeah. on it early, but I'm that's, sure he's already that, thinking that if not already way yeah. past what I think. Yeah. yeah, that's what you want to do. You want you need to be in the information flow, yeah. right? So I feel so like I'm in the river. I'm I'm I have a little. I'm not I'm not running the boat. I'm in the boat, <laughs> right? As long as you're in the yeah. flow, as yeah, long as you exactly. as long as you are receiving the information that is relevant, then you're in the right place. So I mean, think about it for a minute. In in 1998, there was ICANN. And there were domain names, right? And yeah. if you were in the information, part of that, I was part of the dot coms. Yeah. Okay. So if you were in that flow in 1998, then you were buying up dot com names, right? And mm-hmm. you were profiting from that. Mm-hmm. If you were in the information flow in 2010, when Bitcoin was eight cents a piece, you were buying them up, right? You know, today that that new activity is NFTs. It's, it's NFTs. And yeah. so, I missed the 1998 uh, .com craze. I was started buying certain domains in probably 2000. And by then, most of them were gone. We're gone. Right? I, I wasn't paying attention in 2010 when Bitcoin was eight cents and I wasn't buying yeah. it. Right. But I am very much in the beginning of the NFT space. So I'm actually I actually have a fund. Yeah, I'm I'm actually going to be minting, uh, designing and minting, working with artists from all over the world, designing and minting NFTs. And we're at the inception of that right. new opportunity. Now, there will be ups and downs, right? Oh, there will yeah, be of course, of course. But and, it's and, still going to go up, up, up in the long run because we're not going backwards. It was funny. I was talking to somebody, an uncle or something. He's in his 80s and 
I've got lots of lots of family. And he was saying, well, the Internet's just a you know flash in the pan. And that's why I'm not going to do it. And yeah, right. <laughs> right. I said, oh, Uncle Darce, no, <laughs> it's not a flash in the pan. It's here to stay. And you know, and he goes, yeah, but it won't matter because I'm not going to be around that much longer. And I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But it is harder and harder because I have to make a phone call to him in order to communicate with him. Right. And it, and I would like to share pictures of what I'm doing with my family and his great grandnieces and things like that. But our great, great grandnieces and nephews. But it's just much harder to communicate with him. And I have to go out of my way to make sure I call him. And that's OK. And so there's going to be some little danglers there. But, you know, what I love about this and, and part of this podcast is breaking through glass ceilings, right, is that we are breaking through multitudes of glass ceilings right now. And this is where you want to be. This is yeah. where you want to be. So I love that you're doing the charge for it. And I know that you're going to be talking about even more of these topics when I get a chance to see you here in a couple of months out in San Diego but I would say, you know, if you want to give away 100 or 1 million of these ebooks, what is the best way for someone to get 100 of the ebooks or what, a million of the yeah. ebooks? And not, not that they're going to go get a million, but right. how they can start sharing it. Yeah. Right. I'm having a hard they, time with uh, my numbers all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 They would go on millennialsamurai.com, millennialsamurai.com. And they would download the digital ebook. And it's free. It's 444 pages, but it's very easy to read. You don't have to read the whole thing. You can pick and choose the chapters that you want to focus on and that you want to read. You can read it over time. There, you don't have to start at the beginning and move to the end. You could start at the end, move to the beginning. There's uh, it's all broken down into these short, bite-sized chapters that are only one to three pages each. They're very, very easy to read. And you will learn, I guarantee, that virtually half the book will tell you things that you do not know today. That because, and how do I know that? Because when I was writing it, the things that I put in the book were things that amazed me and that I did not know at the time that I wrote it in 2019. Yeah. So... There and are, imagine how much more is in there. You'll have to do another edition as things start changing because I'm sure NFTs aren't even in there. They're not and, in there. And, yeah. and, and it, says on, it says on the cover right here, book one. Book one. Yeah, you knew. You knew I this knew. is coming. You were I ready knew. for that. Yeah. 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 You were ready for it to come. Oh, that's yeah. so awesome. Well, George, it has been so fun having, having you here, just hearing all of the things that you're just, you know, further downstream, but I'm catching up. I'm in a boat behind you. I'm I in behind you, catching up with you. But, uh, you know, it's well, so your son's fire. boat has a motor. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just hanging on to that one, man. Yeah, I'm good. hanging on to that one. So, good. but good. I thank you so much for coming here. And, and for everyone, please go and check, you know, at his website. And we have all of the links below. You can friend him and find out what he's going to be talking about on, on LinkedIn and Instagram and social media so that you can see where he's heading and where he's at, where you can catch him to speak. And, most importantly is if you're hearing this and you're with a major institution of some type, right? Some major institution, major association, George is also a speaker. So get him to come and inspire people about what the changes are to come so that you can be the straw that stirs your business and stirs your industry in this whole big global economy. So take him up on his offer to come and speak at your, your events as well. Yes, I would love to speak at, at anyone's event and uh, can also do breakout group sessions with your executives or with your attendees, question Wonderful. and answers, 
you know, there's a lot to learn about what's going to happen. And it's really about being in the information flow and yeah. understanding what's happening so that you can take advantage of it. Yeah, it's almost like you should coin it IF instead of AI. It's information flow, right? It's yeah. the information flow that's happening. And who ever thought at the beginning of this, this recording, if you stayed to the end and hopefully you have because you were so excited about everything, that talking to an attorney would end up in where we're at right now and talking about what's going on. And now you understand why I brought George on to share his story and his ideas and thoughts with all of us. So thank you again, George, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening in. I appreciate that you take time from your day. Please do us a favor and scroll down on your iPhone and give us a great five-star rating and then write us a great little review down there. We'd love to hear what you loved about this particular episode and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Success to Significance with Jen Duplessis, the number one podcast for people wanting to give more value and make an impact. Loved this episode? Be sure to subscribe right now at www.jenduplessis.com slash S2S for more stories, strategies, and thoughts to help you gain significance and success. And if you like what we're doing, don't forget to give us a rating and review so we can continue to bring you the best content possible. Join us next week for another breakthrough episode. Thank you for listening.